Hey, welcome everyone to the Reflex Blues Show. I'm your host Donovan Beery, and I have with me for the for the last time this season Hannah Zimmerman. I gotta I gotta give thanks to Hannah. She interned for us for three weeks and has done a great job. She did the graphics for this season's Reflex Blues Show. If, if you if you see them in your iTunes window or whatever, I don't I don't know what appears, what doesn't. She's also co-hosted and and came up with a list of most of the guests that we've had on so far, including Ken Barber from House Industries. Hey, welcome, Ken. Hey, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah, I guess to get started, I was watching um, actually a video of you talking about your book, The Making of House Industries Lettering Manual. And you had several quotes in there that I thought were very interesting. But like the first one I wanted to kind of talk about was uh, learn from what you like and apply it to what you do. And you continue to talk about things of design that like inspired you as like, a kid and growing up. But what were kind of the milestones that led you to become uh, a letterer? Like, to pursue that instead of other aspects of design? I've always been interested in design of some sort, even before I knew what to call it. So when I was younger, like most kids, I liked to, to draw. And I didn't really separate the drawing of letters from illustrating other, other things. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know any better. I wasn't familiar with like the different disciplines in terms of a, you know, professional, from a professional standpoint. So I just kind of did what I like to do. And I integrated lettering and illustration. And this uh, was an interest that stayed with me into high school. By that time, I started to get into punk rock and uh, hardcore music and also uh, skateboarding and that sort of thing. And there were artists in those scenes that uh, I gravitated to. And I think it was because they also didn't make a distinction between illustration and you know drawing things and drawing letters, and they just saw letters as different kinds of things. And uh, Jim Phillips was one of those. He was the art director at uh, Santa Cruz Skateboards. And so that really encouraged me to see other people not making that sort of distinction. And I had encouragement from, from my parents to, surprisingly, to attend art school. I was a bit surprised, (laughs) surprised (laughs) at that. They actually, they, they encouraged me and they, they, uh, you know, they helped me as much as they could to well, attend art school. Where, where, to help the audience, where are you from? Like where your parents, I mean, cause, and I guess this would have been a while ago now, now art school probably isn't a big of a stretch, but, yeah. but like what area of the country did you originally come from? Yeah, I'm, I'm from, I guess I'm Southeast Pennsylvania. So I'm actually, yeah. I guess you could call it Pennsylvania Dutch country. The town that I was born and raised in is Reading, PA. And although at the time it was uh, a bigger city and and uh, a little bit going on there, uh, it's it's it, for for folks who don't know, it's I'd say about an hour outside of Philadelphia. You know, I I graduated high school in 1990, and so at that time, art school was still something. It was sort of like, really, are you really gonna you know get anything profitable or worthwhile out of that? Are you gonna be able to you know four years of drawing? stuff? Are you going to be able to make a career out of that? But somehow my parents, they, they didn't attend college. And so it wasn't like they had that kind of background to say, like, from personal experience. But I think they understood that at that time, higher education was, uh, you know, an important thing. And if and if it was something that you were interested in and, and, and good at, then all the better. So that's why I say I was a little bit surprised. I mean, they've always encouraged me, but you know, that's kind of a big leap to say, okay, I'm going to spend four years on a collegiate level studying this sort of stuff. And um, that was very cool. And so that's where I met Alan Mercer, who was uh, a former partner of House Industries, the fledgling 
House Industries, which actually started uh, as a brand design company in 1993. It was founded by Rich Rote and the late Rich Rote and Andy Cruz. Alan joined them shortly after they started the company. And he was the one who was kind of my mentor in school because lettering wasn't taught. There was desktop publishing and digital design really started to take off. And so people were interested in that, but he really encouraged me to integrate lettering in my work. So I'd say he was kind of the next person to encourage me in that way. And, and that was my connection to House Industries. There's another, so you had also, uh, there's another quote that your dad said, or you said that your dad would say a lot, is pouring syrup on shit doesn't make it a pancake. And I, I laughed really hard at it because I was like, that's true, just because you pour it doesn't make it a pancake. But what, did your dad have any other quotes or what, what kind of brought that? My dad, my dad's a character, he's the, he, yeah, he's 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 really funny. I I honestly don't remember the context when he shared that with me. I was a kid. I couldn't have been more than eight or ten years old, and I think I was helping him work on something. And I think I wanted to kind of you know half-ass it and get it done. Right. And you know that was his way of telling me that you know you can kind of make something look pretty, but if you actually don't really solve the problem then, you know, right. you, you haven't solved the problem, right? So uh, the only way to do it is to, you know, make sure you're doing it right. And, and it has, you know, ultimately doesn't really have anything to do with, with what it looks like superficially. It's, um, mm-hmm. you know, the nuts and bolts of something have to work. And I think that's, that was his, you know, his strange way of trying to tell me that there's a difference between those two things. And I had no clue what the heck he was talking about at the time. I'm just like, okay, dad, sure. But it's interesting as I started to pursue lettering that, you know, that that quote just kind of stuck with me. And and it, it just started to make a whole lot of sense, especially when I started to teach and have conversations with other letterers and learn more myself. I realized that if 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 I didn't create something that was solid at its core, that didn't address bigger picture or important issues as far as the practice of lettering is concerned, and I I merely focused on you know the appearance of the forms, and not necessarily perhaps how they worked or where they were, whether they were doing their job or telling the story that they needed to tell, then I was just pouring syrup on shit. You know, I was like, pardon my French, but I was making it look pretty, but underneath the hood, it was you know it wasn't working. So. That was just something that stayed with me. And, you know, it clicked at a point in my life again when I was teaching and I used it as an adage to to share with my students. And I'm sure some of them are like, all right, Ken, sure. What the heck are you talking about? Whatever, you know, but, it, you know, it's one of those things that it's interesting to make those connections. Right. With your with your history right. beyond outside of what it is you do and to just connect those dots on a, on a more personal level. But no, yeah, it just sounds like something that my dad would say to me and just sounds like one of those things where it's just like to look at it, make sure that you're doing all that you can in the aspects of design because there's more than just what it seems like sometimes. Like lettering, it's not just what it's not just what it looks like because it's just as important as the message that the words are saying itself, which I think is really cool. Well, just, um, yeah, you know, to, just... to follow up with that, you know, you often see it where people are overly concerned with producing a piece of design. So it doesn't necessarily have to be lettering. It could be any discipline that kind of falls under commercial art or graphic design, where people are more concerned with how slick it looks or how well produced it is perhaps digitally. With lettering, it's with vectoring letters or drawing them 
in points and lines so that they can be reproduced more easily, which is a common, it's, it's a necessity typically, especially when you're creating logos and word marks and things like that. Clients want that kind of thing, which makes sense. But oftentimes designers I've noticed or letterers will become preoccupied with making it look slick in a, in a vector art, in terms of the vector art and miss some really more important issues that really need to be addressed, I believe, before you get to that stage. Um, or there's the belief that because letters or an image looks, you know, kind of rough hewn, that it doesn't have the same kind of value. And, and that's, that's a lesson I learned from growing up with punk rock and hardcore music, but we had to make our own flyers. You know, I played in many awful punk bands and I, I think, Probably the reason I did that was an excuse for me to make like t-shirts and flyers, you know, to advertise uh, our right. shows. But, you know, we didn't really have, we didn't know what graphic design was. We knew we had, we had to advertise a show that no one was going to come to anyway, let's face it. But, you know, we did it anyway, but we didn't have professional tools available to us. You know, we had, we do like ransom note type of stuff or, or, you know, in my case, I would draw the, the lettering or try to reproduce logos. And I just had a lot of fun with it, but you know, we didn't have professional means to reproduce these things. I mean, fortunately my mom and dad had photocopiers at their office, you know, so you'd get this thing and it was, you know, it was really rough and it wasn't just the flyers that we made. It was the flyers our friends were making, the whole scene was making, and there was a quality to them that wasn't polished, but it didn't mean they weren't good pieces of design. I'm not saying all of them were great, yeah. but there's this false equivalent that's made between something that looks refined and it being good. And it's not always the case. You know, that's one of the things I think that that, that quote from my dad sort of, you know, it speaks to that. And uh, I've seen it with my own experience yeah. and I, I try to help other people kind of connect those, those things as well. Well, I think once the yeah. computer became so prevalent and everybody has one, all of a sudden people are doing more hand-drawn stuff because it's so easy to make something look refined that it's starting to become apparent that that was never what made it good. He has also, I think with, uh, I think it's a good point. There, there's, there's also the access to typography and in many cases, really good typography in some cases, not so good, but that ease and immediacy granted, there's something very practical about that. There's something, there's a, a kind of immediate sort of pleasure as well, but I think people are experiencing, it seems to me anyway, that people are experiencing a kind of overload with digital media. And as far as I can tell, it, it, it's pointed people back to doing things with their hands, reminding them of the things that they did that got them interested in various aspects of design before they really knew what it was. Like, you know, when we were kids and it was to create wasn't some, it wasn't a conscious endeavor. You just did it. And in those moments, you, you know, we, we all had those moments. We just experience an immense amount of joy. And I, I think people are making that connection again between working with their hands, seeing that immediate creation happening and it's coming, you know, it's kind of the shortest path possible from their brain to their hand. And then they see this idea unfold in front of them on a piece of paper. And there's something very satisfying about that. And, uh, and yeah, I believe people, you know, oftentimes designers begin to miss that. So I think that's steering folks back to things like traditional hand lettering. I do agree that it feels like sometimes there's like a rule book, like you have to fit because since you, everybody is making, it feels like everyone's doing something. There's like a rule book that you have to follow to like do lettering or illustrations or a certain kind of branding. 
like how you mentioned like when you were younger how you just would make your own t-shirts or like you you didn't even know what graphic design was or design was I think that social media and technology has kind of taken away from that a bit and I think we're all slowly going back to trying to realize there you can do things like there's not a rule book you can do kind of whatever you want and I think that people are starting to do that and you can see it grow a little bit and I think it's really cool to watch people find their own style and their own niche and not feel like they have to be they're finding the deeper meaning they're not just pouring syrup on stuff <laughs> they're making pancakes yeah this this goes back to the 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 quote that you mentioned earlier which was learn uh, from learn what from you like yeah um, the, and apply it to what you do sorry right learn from what you like and apply it to what you do and that is actually from the house industries the process is the inspiration which is a book that I co-authored with Andy Cruz and the late Rich wrote. And that was about elements of our creative process in in house industries, our design studio. And they're not big, mysterious, or, you know, even terribly profound bits of information. I think most of us have the kinds of ideas and experiences that that we discuss in the book but they all seem to come back to this idea of just continuing to learn in the way that we did when we first became interested in creating things, whatever they may have been. And it was generally we gravitated to those things that just gave us pleasure in some way or another. And we spent time with those things because we enjoyed it. And we learned from those experiences, whether we knew it or not. And once you recognize that, you can, it can become a conscious endeavor. You can spend time working with the things that you enjoy or studying them. And it doesn't even have to be a discipline. It can be people, you like their company, you know, their friends, right? You can, we can learn from friends and experiences and our own talents and interests. And you can use that as the basis for a creative process. And we realize that's the way we've always pursued things at house, the way we've always pursued things when we were kids, even you know be- before house was a thing. And, and that's the kind of thing that we, we just want to remind people of, because you may reach a point where you, you may forget that, I suppose. Yeah. And when you do the work that you do, the things you create may seem, they, they, they can seem more of a, of a, of a task uh, than a pleasure. And, I, and it doesn't always happen. Those, you know, those two things don't always coincide where you have a project and you love every aspect of it. You know, I'm, I'm sure we all have jobs or projects that we've done and we're not the most thrilled or our, you know, we're, uh, our heads aren't in it for one reason or another. I'm not saying it's always the case, but it's the ideal. And, and uh, I, I think it's what most of us generally shoot for. Have you ever been stuck then? Have you ever come into that point where you felt you weren't doing what you liked or you were doing kind of a task? Like, how did you, I guess, we all eventually know, probably when you find jobs and all that, how did you get to this point? Did you ever find you were working for a job that you didn't like? Have you always just been doing what you love? In my, you know, in my personal experience, it's that... Those kinds of experiences have have changed over the course of my career. So I met Alan when I was in college, as I mentioned. And so I've been working with House. Well, I was initially worked with House uh, as a freelance designer, designing typefaces, doing lettering and illustration for about 
maybe about a year or a year and a half. And then I came on board full time in 1996. So I've been at house, you know, really, I, I think I could say for the entirety of my professional lettering career anyway. The, the things that I noticed were that the challenges or the stumbling blocks that maybe made projects or moments seem arduous or, or maybe less than ideal, that has changed for me over, over, over the years. And yeah. initially, I think those, those kinds of hurdles came up when, and like we all experience um, a kind of designer's block you're uncertain of a direction or you pour yourself into something and it just doesn't turn out the way you envisioned it. Mm-hmm. And I, I now nowadays I I experience less of that. I think what I experience now is um, if I have the feeling that I haven't challenged myself enough, particularly with lettering, if I feel like I'm going to the well once too often, I think that's where the challenge, those are the days where I feel, okay, um, I got to do something to switch gears here or mix things up. Um, so that that's how, that's when I feel those moments of maybe it's not as pleasurable as other days. Let's put it that way. Right. I mean, you have to have those days. You don't, you don't know the good ones if you don't have the bad ones. Right. So that's true. How do you, so how do you continue to challenge yourself then since you've, you've made, you've worked with JJ Abrams, which I heard you talk about how I was working with him. Yeah. JJ super cool. Yeah. And and you know no pressure when you're when you're working with someone right. like that. But uh, apparently, you know the the thing that's refreshing is when you meet people whose work you admire, admire, whether it's you know lettering or design or any other field, and you you discover that they're just really cool, down to earth, normal folks. You know, right. um, so I was you know we were all put at ease when we started working with with JJ. He had actually reached out years ago and we shared a mutual appreciation of the um, the respect that we had for his work and and mm-hmm. his admiration for uh, the design that, that and the lettering that we were producing and the typograph uh, the typefaces and um, we early on I think we mutually decided that we didn't want to push a relation, a creative kind of relationship um, in a way that didn't make sense or didn't, you know, wasn't a good fit. And so it was just really a a kind of a friendship for a number of years. And when he started to shoot the ninth installment of the Star Wars series, uh, The Rise of Skywalker, I think I got the the name right, the title, right? Yeah, you gotta gotta Um, get on that early. There's only one left. I mean, that's when you gotta pounce. (laughs) well there's only there's only one left uh, i I want in on this so uh when um he approached us uh uh, you know about doing something you know in conjunction with this star wars flick and you know our minds are you know immediately thinking oh what's it gonna be is it right you know maybe it's something on the set or you know is, is it part of the identity or something and and it turned out that it was like way cooler than any of that and that's when he explained to us that when they film on location, they have to kind of have these decoy logos and things that they slap over everything to to throw the super fans off the scent, so they don't crash the set and and and, and you know kind of ruin the the filming and production and that sort of stuff. Yeah, the the, and, the famous uh, one was uh, was Blue Harvest when they did Jedi, right? They still talk about I, that. 
I don't. I'm blue. I'm not familiar with Blue Harvest. I know that Blue Red Harvest was, was the name of a, a fake, the fake horror movie that they were filming when they were filming Return of the Jedi. So when people showed up, they would give out merch and stuff, and people would like just be like, "Oh yeah, I'm not interested." And they would just leave because you couldn't have you couldn't hand them like Return of the Jedi stuff. People would well, it would have been Revenge of the Jedi was the working title then. You couldn't yeah. hand them anything with that because they would have just hung around. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So. So the code name for the ninth film uh, is Trixie, and it it um, it cleverly hides the the Roman numeral nine in it in the IX. Nice. And I thought, oh, that's super cool. But I did some sketches where I tried to. I did a, you know, the theme could have been anything because uh, as long as it didn't look like Star Wars, right? And so I did some flourishy pieces of flourish pieces of lettering and in in the kind of curly cues of the flourish, I hid number nine and and yeah. that sort of stuff and, and just trying to kind of push it as far as I could. The final design ended up emphasizing this, uh, the IX Roman numeral, but it was just, it was really fun working with him because, I, I, you know, I don't have to explain to you, JJ's obviously a really visually oriented person and you don't have to explain much you know it, it's one of those it's one of those and I hesitate to say clients but you know in that case to compare them to a client you know it's it's one of those cases where there's a certain level of trust and you don't have to explain or we didn't have to try to convince him of everything we could have a an open conversation about what we were doing what he was digging what we liked and that's not always the case and any designer you know the designers listening to this will have horror stories I'm sure of working with people where you know clients where um that's far from the case so it was it was really cool you know he put us at ease and we just relished that experience of that 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 uh that collaboration yeah I think that'd be a super fun collaboration because Star Wars has always been a big thing in my household I'm I my parents are really big fans and so it's it's been like put on to me I'm not as much of a super fan, but I thought that was really cool that you got to work with someone like that. And then you also got to work, I don't know if you worked with Jimmy Kimmel himself, but you got to redo his wording for his signage there, correct? And you got to see like that process go all the way through. Um, yeah, we did a couple of wow. projects with uh, with Jimmy. Well, Jay, it, you know, it's funny because JJ and Jimmy are, are friends and yeah. it was yeah. it was JJ who turned Jimmy on to us and he reached out when he wanted to rebrand uh, Jimmy Kimmel Live, uh, his his late night show. And he's another person who is, you, know, you can tell that he's a really down to earth kind of guy. Right. But what I didn't know is that he began his career with an interest in design. And then he, he moved into um, what he does now. Yeah. But he had a background in design and, and an interest in design. And he was another one of those people where we could, uh, we didn't really have to censor ourselves or I shouldn't say censor ourselves, filter ourselves. We didn't have to filter what we were doing. We could quite literally lay it all on the table, you know, and have a conversation about it. So the work that we did for him, that design, he grew up in New York. He, he spent his, um, his adolescence in uh, in Las Vegas and his studios out in California. And each of those places have a strong visual identity that's tied into American signage, like your your, yeah. your classic, what they call pylon signs, roadside signage that is, is, I think you could argue is distinctly American. And right. we thought, wow, this is this kind of 
connects these different aspects of his life, uh, different periods of his life. Let's draw from that. He was super into it, sending us photos of signs that he, you know, he'd see a sign in a in a movie as he's watching TV, he sees a sign, and he'd take a picture of that and 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 email it to Andy and 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 right. say like. You know, what do you, what do you think of this? This could be kind of cool if we incorporated something like that. So it was another kind of situation where it was a really good exchange. And I think you're lucky when you find people for whom or with whom you share this uh, mutual kind of trust and admiration, because I think those, those are the strongest. And of, co- of course that can take time, but uh, when you do find those, I think those are usually the most rewarding experiences. And then later um, he invited us to design the the identity for his comedy club out in Vegas. Um, And uh, he was really instrumental in the design there. And that was, that similarly, well, we took a a, a somewhat of a similar tack with that, but he was really instrumental in the design and the conversations that we had influenced the final product to a really large extent. And uh, so, again, it, it's not always common, but we are really great, grateful to have not only those experiences, but to you know to to build those those uh, those friendships and relationships with with folks. Right. Were you ever able to go out to Vegas and see uh, his comedy club up in personal or up and close? Or sadly, I have not. We wrapped it up. I guess it was sometime trying to think when we finally wrapped it up and my plan was I wanted to head out there and then ultimately to the studio. Rich and Andy were at his studio um, in California where he shoots his show, but we haven't made it to the, to the comedy club because the branding extended beyond the signage. So it's, I mean, it's on everything. It's on, you know, the, the, the glassware and everything down to like napkins and menus and all this sort of stuff. Cause it's this, yeah. you know, whole production. He's got a kitchen and yeah. So one of these, one of these days when, um, you know, I feel comfortable on a, on an airplane. Yeah. <laughs> right. hopefully, soon, hopefully soon. Yeah. Hopefully, hopefully still in 2021. We'll, we'll see. We'll see. Well, we're going to be right back with Ken Barber. Ken, we actually, I think we talked in email. I think we probably briefly met in Nebraska half a lifetime ago. You know, I was, I was still at my first job in, in, in how industries you guys came out and spoke for AIG to AIG Nebraska. Did we figure that was like year 2000? You are correct, Donna. That was 20 years ago. Yeah. And when you, when you hit me up or when, when, yeah, when you hit us up at the email, um, and you mentioned that you remembered the Omaha gig. I thought, oh my gosh, like how long? I had to go look and see when we were out there. That's when we were, so we got, we got, uh, you know, a little tired of, of doing the, um, the typical kind of talking head sort of design lecture gigs. And we decided, you know what, uh, we, we were actually, we, we, we gave a talk in Berlin, uh, part of Tipo Berlin, which is uh, a conference they held um, pretty regularly. And we, we, I think Carlos Segura spoke uh, before or after us. And um, Carlos Segura is a graphic designer, founder of T26 uh, Foundry, Type Foundry. And he had, at the time, this is when you, it was pre-digital really. And you would take a, 
a carousel of slides of your work. And, you know, the carousel would hold, I don't, I don't, I don't know how many 80 slides or hundred slides or he had two of them set up and he had multiple screens. And this was like, for us, like the height of technology and like design lecture entertainment. And we're just like, man, we gotta, we gotta figure out a way to take this to the next level. And just, there's an opportunity when you speak, you can, you know, you can certainly share your, your knowledge or whatever it is that you, you've learned, your observations, but there's also an opportunity to entertain. And I guess it's, it's part of our own uh, short attention spans where we get a little bored, even giving these talks and, sure, sure. Uh, and, and we decided, okay, we're going to try to, we're going to try to take that further. And we thought, what if we had a band? What if we have a live band? Cause Annie plays drums. I play bass. I use play very lightly. I own a bass guitar and I can pluck the strings without it sounding too terrible. And then Adam, uh, our uh, illustrator at house, uh, he plays guitar. And so we would, we would play just some background instrumental stuff. And then Rich occasionally would speak over us or at least attempt to and talk about, you know, whatever it was, was on screen with this slideshow at the same time. And we did that for a number of years. And that Omaha gig was when that was going pretty strong because we met the AIJ Nebraska folks at the Howe conference in 1999 out in Vegas. And we did it there. And um, poor Peter Saville was in the next ballroom. And if oh, you've geez. ever been to these big convention centers, oh, I have if you've been, ever yeah. been to these conventions, they're, you know, there aren't proper walls. They just separate them with like, they're practically like folding they're almost like curtains, you know, it's like, there isn't, there, there isn't like really a sufficient, put it this way, there's no kind of sound barrier right. <laughs> in between right. these, these rooms that are partitioned. And Chi Perlman was the, uh, I think she was the head of the AGA at the time. And when they were asking us what we need, we we're like, okay, we're going to do this whole band thing. We need a sound system. We need a sound guy. And they were just all in. So we thought, awesome, this is going to be cool. We're we're into the first like intro bit in in Vegas, and we have people come in. And at first, it's like just the people who are volunteering to help. And they're like, "Oh, you, can, you know, giving us the hand signals. You got to turn it down. You gotta turn it down." We're like, "We're not turning down. Are you crazy?" And ACDC and, has only played at one volume. They should know that. <laughs> exactly. Well, we opened we opened up with a jazz version of a hardcore song by a band called the Chromags. And, but we did a kind of a jazzy version. We didn't think it was too loud. And the fortunate thing is, as much as the AIJ tried to shut us down, we were like, you know what? We prepared for this. There was no mystery, like what we were going to do. We didn't know Peter Savile was in the next room. So we were like, we're just going to do our thing. And we had won over our sound guy. Like we bonded with our sound guy. And he, he was just like, I'm not shutting anything down. And we just kept the whole thing rolling. And we didn't find out until later that we we pretty much ruined anyone else's talk that they were giving. But despite all of that, despite all of that, AIJ Nebraska, the folks from AIJ Nebraska were like, that was really fun. We'd love to have you guys come out. And we were just, we were kind of like looking at it more as like a tour than than anything else. And and when in Nebraska, and you'll you'll remember this, Donovan, we played in a bowling alley. Yeah, that was so we I joined I joined the board probably the next 
year or two after that. So, so that's, I wasn't, I was, I think I probably came and said hi or something to how people, but or the house people, but I, I was bowling way off on another lane. And actually I was hanging out. That's where I hung started hanging out with like Jason Salentis, who now writes books about design and so forth. He was, he was actually there as well. Yeah. There, it, it's, it's, an, it's really, I, it shouldn't be shocking of the, the people that we've met over the years and, and uh, you know, who the heck knows what they're going to be doing 10, 20 years down the line. But we've had a lot of occasions where we've met a lot of cool folks doing those kinds of things that fortunately the bowling alley, we didn't get shut down. Um, well, we rented we the, whole, little, the, the chapter rented the entire alley. So they, they were smart. They didn't have someone next door. They just said, we're just going to rent, rent the whole thing for the night or whatever. And, and uh, there was no, no one kicking you out. The, the big thing with that was that, they wouldn't let it. We had to wear bowling shoes because we performed on the actual alley. And their concern was that we were going to spoil the, the, you know, the hardwood. So they did, they, there were like, there was one or two alleys that they didn't, whatever kind of finish they do, they didn't do that. And we had to wear bowling shoes and a, which was fine. Cause we had bowling outfits. We would, that's the other thing is we would dress up in matching, matching outfits and try to kind of match them uh, thematically. So we actually had old bowling jerseys you know like uh you know the the the, the uh, uh bowling teams and stuff used to have and so you know for us it was just a, really just a, a stupid excuse to just have fun and and i think demonstrate to people that like you know design can it can take you know different avenues and you can do different things with it and you know you can do your own thing with it the other thing I have to ask is because the thing back then is, is you guys were selling a lot of custom fonts that were, that were geared towards designers, which you still do. And Hannah may never see this in her career since everything was delivered via floppy disk, I believe, probably three and a half inch disks. You guys actually, you know, you actually got your font, you would order it, it would be mailed to you. But if you ordered from house, it would come in like a custom die cut box that would be shaped like a van or a bowling bag. Or, or something like that, which obviously now it's all digital. Like, did, did that crush you a little bit when when you had to lose that aspect of your of your work? We try to hold on for that as long as possible, but that's that's a really good summation about. Uh, yeah, we would people would call by telephone. They would call us. They would order by telephone, and we'd ship orders. Uh, spend the you know the latter half of the day packing up orders and things. And originally we were shipping these floppy disks and um, it was just kind of boring. And it was, it, I think it was Andy who thought, you know, as designers, part of a large part of your experience and the way that people, people experience design is a tactile experience. And you miss a large part of that if you're just getting this boring floppy disk. And so those guys started to cook up like more elaborate ways to package these things. And as we started to create collections of typefaces that were stylistically under a particular theme, then the packaging was created to reflect those, those themes. So we had the tiki fonts or uh, the street van and, and the street van is a scale model van that's die cut out of a, a, a sheet of like a card stock it's printed and then Lou, our shipping guy, and I think he still does it occasionally. If people if people know um, and they request it, he'll make one. I don't know if it's it may have been a while, but you know it would take him a little time to glue fold this thing and glue it together. It's like this elaborate origami custom van, and 
and it had a little it, the, the back opened up and then it had a little part in there to, to slide the disc in and then we could roll up a t-shirt and fit it in there. And, you know, for us design, it, we wanted to explore those ideas from every facet, from every angle. And it was, again, an, uh, an opportunity to share more than just say this, you know, this digital vapor, these fonts, but a story to go along with it. And, and so we were interested just as much in producing the fonts as we were using these things to tell those stories. And we, and we still do, but you're right. You know, with mo most people who just want the convenience, they download and, you know, and, and that's it. You know, we still try to figure out ways to, to waste money and, and make some products like prints and, you know, and stuff like that. Uh, and, and, you know, fortunately our customers, uh, they're still interested in that stuff too. So that's, that's, a, that's an encouraging sign. Well, I ordered a couple of shirts way back then, probably I think right after right after I saw your talk, and and I remember one of them was the uh, one of the was it Big Daddy Roth, and I think it came in it came in a like a model kit car box. I, I remember that. I, I don't have the box or the shirt anymore, but I was like I still remember the box it came in. Yeah, yeah, that was we uh, we worked with the car customizer Ed Big Daddy Roth and Andy got turned on to him from his dad, who is a car customizer and pinstriper by trade. And, um, and th there's, if you're not familiar, or for those of you who aren't familiar, look up Ed Big Daddy Roth, and he would, he would customize cars and he'd create these really elaborate bubble top, super chromed out, crazy custom rods. And, uh, but he would also, in order to, as a kind of like a sort of a, 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 an adjacent hustle, if you will, he would go to these car shows and show them, but he would sit in a booth and he'd airbrush t-shirts for people if they wanted them. And his whole thing was he would, he would illustrate these monsters in different, in different cars, whether it's Chevy or Ford or, you know, uh, you know, things along those lines. And, and uh, that was kind of like his, his little hustle when he went to these, to these car shows. And he started, he put together a studio, he had other artists and they were producing this. And that was part of his, you know, kind of part of his, um, I don't want to say shtick, but it wasn't that he was just customizing the cars. He also had, you know, apparel and that sort of stuff. And it was just an extension of his personality. And his alter ego was this character Ratfink. And that's probably how most people would be, most people would be familiar with that, this alter ego of his that he called Ratfink. And that was the really big thing. And, and so Andy just reached out to him in the, in the mid nineties and I think it was around 96 and just said, Hey, what do you think about if we, we made these fonts and, and he was kind of getting turned on to like desktop publishing and all this sort of stuff. So for him, it was really interesting and he was really cool with it. So we made typefaces, drew them all out and, we digitized them in the studio and, and they were based on either packaging of, you know, his cars at that time were made into plastic models, scale plastic models. Kids were really into that. And we would, we took lettering either from cars themselves or from the model packaging or from a t-shirt, put together this collection. And, and as you described, wrap the whole thing in this box that was reminiscent of these, uh, the plastic scale models of, of the cars that he created. So it was a, a way again to kind of, you know, connect with people, show that there's, you know, value beyond what might, you know, people might expect with this, with this genre and tell a story, you know, and do it in a way that's fun and really hands-on. So that's great. That's, that's cool that you, uh, <laughs> you were a supporter from then. Yeah. It's, well, I've always, I've always enjoyed that 
and I guess I saw most of that talk is is at the time it's like you guys went further into a project than than most would. I guess is is how I would see it, and it was fun that Probably that always carried far. through. Yeah, <laughs> right. You got to entertain yourself. You know, it's it's it it does got to go back to that thing where it's like. It, if you can try to find the, you know, the joy in it and every moment's not going to be like that. But if you try to find those opportunities, you, you know, we found we're better for it and it resonates more with people. You know, we have people, you know, such as yourself who remember like, Oh yeah, I ordered the, you know, these fonts and this elaborate packaging or the crazy t-shirts or, you know, whatever, you know, whatever it is, it's just making that connection. It's a stronger connection. I think when you, when you try to pursue those, you know, the different avenues in order to, in order to do that. One last question before we go, what advice do you have for Hannah? She's about to graduate here in a few months. What advice do you have to someone who's uh, an aspiring designer or in today's world? Cause, yeah. cause, cause you're not going to, you're not going to get a design three and a half inch floppy disks anymore. That's yeah. probably, you're, that's probably in the past. You're not, you're not, you know, one thing I see a lot and I'm, uh, I think I think the advice is generally well intentioned, but I'm not so sure it, how well thought through it is. Sometimes, where you'll he'll hear people telling you to follow your passion, right? If you ask me, so I started college when I was 17. I didn't have a passion, you know. I I I I was probably passionate about partying at school. That was probably like a passion. <laughs> I didn't think I could make a career out of that. Now it's rare. Probably now, very rare. Probably now, you could. You probably could now. It's still right? rare, but it, it's possible. So this, you know, this notion of following your your passion, I think it's well intentioned. The truth of the matter is, is that you know, as cliched as it may sound, is usually your those things find you, right? Your your career generally finds you. It doesn't mean that you don't take steps in that direction or may not take steps in that direction or that you kind of have to reason through everything. But I would say remain open to possibilities, remain open to those directions. You know, if you have interests, certainly pursue them. But I would say, you know, I'd be tempted not to get hung up on this idea that you have to find some kind of passion and it's going to, it, it, you know, it's, it's just going to lead you down the, you know, the path that you were meant to pursue because let's face it, people, people do things they enjoy for years and then switch gears and do other things, you know? So I would leave room in your life open to those passions and those interests, knowing that that's actually something that develops over time, but also recognize that, you also have talents and you also may have kind of a vocation, like a calling. Sometimes those three things overlap, your, pa- your, you know, your passion, your interest, your calling. And sometimes they don't, sometimes they don't, you know? So, so I mentioned Alan, Alan was, I, I call him my first lettering teacher and mentor, at least in a sort of, you know, a, an unofficial capacity he worked uh, with house for a number of years, but he left to become a minister and He's a, a missionary in, in Hungary right now. And so he uh, had a strong inkling and I, you could say a passion for design. He certainly had the skills and the interest, but that, those, that wasn't his vocation, right? So I would say, take things as they come. Don't get too hung up on this idea. I got to find, you know, I've got to figure things out. 
because that takes time. So just go with the flow, follow those interests and just see where they lead you. I, I, I don't know. How, I don't know if that's good. I don't know if that's good advice. Um, this is good practice because I got kids. Yeah. So you can tell me, I'll, I'll check back with you in a couple of years, right? And then oh, I'll yeah. say, hey, that that advice, how terrible was it? Did it work out? And then I'll know. Because my kids will be at that right. point then and then I can, yeah. I have time to, to fine tune. Yeah, if you have any other quotes that you'd like to lay on me, I'll let you know how those turn out as well. Yeah, Hannah, yeah. we're just using you as a guinea pig for our own kids now, That's okay. I guess. I'm the, I'm the oldest. I'm already a guinea pig as it right. is. So just bring it on. <laughs> Hey Ken, Ken, where do you where do you send people who want to find out more about your work or that want to follow you? Do you just send them to that? Is it houseind.com or do you send them to? Is there yeah, you can place go, to, to... go to house go to houseindustries.com. Uh, see what we got going on over there. You can follow House Industries on Instagram and other platforms, and it's just at House Industries. Uh, if you want to see what I'm up to in terms of lettering, you can follow me at at type lettering. It's just at type lettering, uh, and uh, I I post things that I'm working on with house and personal things, things that just amuse me or interest me, but it's, it's from a lettering perspective. So you got to like letters if you want to check it out. Cause that's pretty much what's going on over there. Ken, we really appreciate your time and uh, hopefully it won't be another 20 years before I see you again or something. Yeah. Let's um, so 20, maybe next time we'll try to cut that in half at least. 20, 30. And, uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm right. I'm putting that on my calendar right now. Okay. I'll, hey, I'll send I'll send you an invite uh, and 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 who knows. My guess is calendars could be completely obsolete by then. So that that's that's true. That's true. But thank you so much for having me. It was it was super fun. I, I had a blast. The Reflex Blue Show with Donovan Murray is hosted at 36point.com. Music by Dust Lab.